Welcome to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. Uh, today's guest is another member of the crew from the site, www.rationalstandard.com. Uh, myself and another writer, Christian van Heistien, have previously talked on the podcast, uh, but uh, today I'd like to introduce everybody to one of the founding members, Nicholas Woodsmith. Uh, Nicholas, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, uh, Babaya. No problem. Um, you'll see that I always refer, I'll always be referring to you as Babaya for listeners, because we both share the same first name. It's just a habit. There's too many um, of us. <laughs> too many Nicholases. Way too many. Um, so I am Nicholas Woodsmith, co-founder of The Rational Standard. I help, I co-founded The Rational Standard alongside Christian van Heistien and Martin van Staden and um, Nikolai Hausmer in uh, 2015. Uh, it was called something different at the beginning. The, it was called the South African Libertarian, but then we decided to rebrand it in order to appeal to a wider audience. So uh, in 2016, it became the Rational Standard. Uh, and uh, we've just gone on from strength to strength there. Uh, it's actually interesting. I was thinking about the, the beginnings of the Rational Standard very recently and uh, how the sort of political climate in South Africa was at the time. I mean, I'm just interested to ask, now that I'm thinking about it, do you think that there was a major ship, shift on university campuses around 2014, 2015? Or do you yeah, think it was always but kind 2015 of... 2015 was Rosemont Falls, so... Yeah, but, um, but wasn't it, was, were things always like that, or was that just like a big, a big change? So it's actually a... The sad, university is kind of a sad thing for me, because you, you'll know if you followed my writings and a lot of some other interviews, and also just casual conversation... I complain about tertiary education a lot. I yeah. talk about how it's unnecessary, it's a waste of money, it's a, basically an indoctrination camp. But the reason I'm so angry about it is because I actually genuinely do like the academy and I do think it can be valuable. And the reason I know this is because the fo- before Rosemont's Fall, I had a few months of peace at UCT and they were amazing. Just I made so many friends with just so many backgrounds. I uh, We got into just friendly debates where no one just didn't get overly offended people just could have intellectual discussions it was it was beautiful it was what the academy is supposed to be but like some sort i'm trying to say like a scripted event in a computer game when rosemont's fall happened and that uh, shit was thrown on that statue the campus just went insane and the thing is it was an overnight thing and uh, it, it wasn't just, uh, and this is what's so surprising about it, is that often in history you find that things are slow transition. Even wars are slow transition. Yeah. Uh, with a few exceptions, maybe like Pearl Harbor, which have become watersheds. But with this event, campuses have always been kind of left-wing, but they're at least slightly moderate. But when Ro- uh, the Rosemont's Fall movement started, when, um, like Swale uh, threw the buckets of surge on the, the Rhodes statue... Everybody just went insane. Yeah, you know, that was, I was just thinking about this. I think you and I have started Varsity at a very poignant time. Mm-hmm. You started the year, Roads Must Fall started. I started the year after. Um, mm-hmm. And my very first year at Varsity had two major protests here at Rhodes University, um, both of which got very intense, both of which involved police presence on the campus, both of which involved a lot of destruction of, of property blocking roads, uh, shots being fired. Um, and I was thinking to myself, because this is the only university I've ever known, although this year has been very peaceful. Um, there have been a few things that have come up, but 
you know, Rhodes had there. I don't know if you heard about it. They got a court. I'm trying to think what the, 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 the name of the legal term is when you go to a court to get somebody to stop doing something. Oh, an interdict. Interdict, that's the word. They got a court interdict against the protesters, which was very unpopular. A lot of people were trying to change it to interdict must fall. Um, the thing I never really understood about an interdict was, it seems to me that you just, it's, it's kind of like a playground. So it's like when you're on a playground and another kid is bullying you, that's against the rules. So you go to the teacher and the teacher goes back to the kid who's bullying you and tells that bullying kid not to do it anymore. So it seems to what happened is that the protesters were breaking the law. The university went to a judge and the judge basically signed a legal document that says, yes, this is actually the law. You can't do it. <laughs> um, I've always found it a very odd concept. I've tried to ask Martin to explain it to me a few times, but to my knowledge, every time he's explained it to me, that seems to be exactly it. Yeah. But uh, back, back to what I was uh, saying, um, this is the only university I've really known is this sort of campus environment. And I heard someone once mention, I don't know if it was on the Renegade Report or where, but we always seem to be a few years behind what happens in America. And this kind of stuff has been going on in America for a while. The one thing that was quite notable was Charles Murray trying to speak at that um, Middlebury College where somebody had to get put in hospital. And this sort of campus activism w was on US campuses a few years before it hit South Africa. So it seems we're sort of caught up now. Yeah, this is what I, I've mentioned this before, is that so many of the toxic parts of our uh, politics and probably the whole whole of our protest politics in terms of on universities comes from America. It's all imported from America. And there's a story, a personal anecdote that I love to just to explain this. Um, in one of my uh, tutorials, one of the big foilists wearing like you know, a proper red EFF beret, you know, she, she looked the part, she had all the ling critical theory lingo done. Yeah. And she mentioned that blacks in South Africa need to be protected because they're a minority. Because they're a minority? Yeah, because they're a minority. And it's very obvious that she's just been following Black Lives Matter and <laughs> she picks up on their rhetoric and she doesn't know what it means, so she just spe spews it. And the problem is it's a lot of people are like this. And we see a lot of pe uh, and it's also one of the reasons that I think the DA has been collapsing is because so many people look at America saying, oh, that's what a liberal is in America because that's all they know about is American politics. Yeah. So, oh, so this is what a liberal is, it's a social democrat. And this is, uh, oh, and look, the Democrats, oh, Democrats, Democratic Alliance. So we're getting all these social democrats and uh, moderates, but not good moderates, the worst possible moderate you can get, someone who thinks they understand politics but, does not, uh, but doesn't, um, then join the DA and then just start diluting it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny that even within the Democratic Party in the United States, I think ever since the sort of leading up to the 2016 election, you know, I, I remember seeing Jim Webb. I don't know if you remember who he was, if you ever watched the Democratic Party debates. In the very first debate, there were about five people on the stage, and one of them was this guy called Jim Webb, who was a Democrat who had worked under the Reagan administration. And I remember just seeing the way that the Democratic Party has gone today and how it has very few moderates left. There are a handful, people like Joe Manchin. Uh, I'm sure a few others would come to mind if I thought about it. Um, but there has been this radicalization in the United States, and perhaps that's also what's hit us. It's although the radicalization in South Africa is, is a bit different because in our mainstream politics, almost everybody is to the left. And then not in politics, we have uh, organizations 
which are sort of reviving a right-wing movement. Now, I know everybody, it, it's a bit derogatory to call something like Afroforma a right-wing movement. I think, although they take stances on political issues, and you could certainly say that they are conservative, in a sense, they're not a political party in the same way that the EFF is. Um, they, do, they do take the right stance, though. They, they take the correct stance, yes. Um, the right <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest, their leaders have said a few things which have made me go nuts. And I just think, how yeah. the freaking hell do you say that? Um, no, I <laughs> but, I, you know, I, it's funny. I was chatting to someone recently about this. Um, and I, every single time I see Adam Strutz goes on another, gets interviewed by someone, be it on, on, it's usually on radio stations. These radio stations in South Africa have just got a thing for being absolutely horrendous with interviews. And he goes on and basically it's like they just invited him on the show to make an example of, oh, look at these right-wing Afrikaner extremists. Like, look how terrible they are. This guy likes apartheid. And then it turns out that he doesn't. And the thing just turns to absolute crap. Um, I've often said that I don't think Afrifurim should take interviews when they know they're, they're not going to be asked serious questions. I don't know how I got into this topic now. I've actually forgotten my original... Yeah. Doesn't matter. But uh, I agree with you completely, and I've said this quite a few times. Um, Ernst is bad at it. I think he's uh, much better on his feet. He's very good at talking. His English language is a lot better. Uh, Kelly Creel, though, falls into traps all the time. And I think a very simple rule of thumb is, you should firstly, you shouldn't be doing interviews which aren't in a language that you've learned in. I would never, ever do an, uh, an, uh, um, an Afrikaans interview. Firstly, because I can hardly speak. It's almost failed as a matric. But even if I did have it as a second language, I refuse because I know that I'm not going to be able to give an adequate interview. So even if it's a nice interviewer, I'm going to be wasting their time and I'm going to be wasting the um, viewer's time. Well, I mean, uh, the thing is, it's, it's perfectly possible for you to be proficient in a second language and enough to take an interview. I mean, Martin von Staden at us does that most of the time. Well, that's why I say fluent. Oh, yeah. Because Martin is fluent in English and Afrikaans. But what I'd add, what I'd add to that, if you don't mind me just quickly saying here, is that it's not just, it's not just being fluent in a language. It's also, um, it's quite a skill to think quickly and to be articulate and, and to uh, word your arguments and your positions well so that they can't be misrepresented. Adam Sturutz yeah. is excellent at that. And of course he is. He's the spokesperson of Afrifora. Um, Kali Krill is obviously very good as a leader because, you know, he's the, he's the, at the highest position. I think he's the CEO. I can't remember the exact yeah. name. Um, but when, you know, Adam's precise positions is to take those interviews and he does them very well. And I think it's, you know, although he takes many more interviews than Kali Krill, in general, he should be the guy who speaks so as to avoid faux pas like what Kali Krill said on the Eusebius McKaiser show. Mm. And it goes back to what you said, though, is that you shouldn't be going into the enemy's camp because you know it's a trap. Right. I don't think anyone should be agreed to be um, interviewed by Makaiser. He's a not only a dreadful person, but he's a dreadful interviewer, and he brings people on to antagonize them. It's not, it's not pleasant for anyone. I also found it very... Honestly, I haven't really listened to much of Makaiser just because I'm... His radio station doesn't get broadcasted where I live. Um, no, I'm, I'm being serious. It's quite funny because where, where I live is I live in his in his hometown. Um, <laughs> uh, but but um, ach, what was I going to say now? I, I found some of the the people he's interviewed bizarre, um, and 
yeah, I think when you when you know his points of view, I mean, he's an outspoken political activist. He's written books. Um, you have to be aware of that sort of thing. Don't willingly go into the lion's den. Um, yeah, so that that that's that's uh, an interesting thing. I, I think organisations in general should be should be thinking about that. Yeah. It's, uh, it also goes back to the reason that a rational standard would never share communist material. It's not because well, yeah. we think that we should ban the, uh, the freedom of speech of communists. It's that we don't want to provide content or a platform for them. Like, I'm not going to kill a communist, but I'm not going to give them free stuff. And time on their radio station, content, and uh, a platform like the rational standard is a resource that I have, and it's a limited resource. So I'm not going to sacrifice my time for the benefits of communists. So then, now, okay, on that topic, this is something which I've been wrestling with a little bit because I think I agree with the general principle there. It's really not a good idea in terms of overall strategy to be doing something like that. Now, let's, let me take an example recently. You know, of course, Ronaldo Chos, right? Have you ever watched his interviews? No, I've never watched it, but I know who he is. He's actually quite, I think he's also quite a good interviewer. He does a thing called the Sunday Special on his YouTube channel where he interviews a wide variety of people. Um... And what's quite inter interesting is he's been sort of delving into our circle, so to speak. And I think as a result, he's gotten a lot more followers from the right. Um, or, you know, libertarians and, and things like that. Anyway, he was keen to interview someone from Saitlanders, who I think are a bit bizarre. Um, and I think some of the same, the things they say are a bit crazy. But nonetheless, uh, you know, if, you, if he's willing to interview them, I always think that's interesting because Ronaldo Chos is on the left, broadly speaking, and Saitlanders are certainly on the right. Um, and he's tried to contact them a few times, and I remember Saitlanders responded to one of his tweets by saying something to, along the lines of, yeah, we're not willing to talk to left-wing people like you. I'm going to actually, just while I'm here, I'm just going to quickly Google it. Um, and this was rightly mocked and derided as being too afraid to engage in conversation. And I think that is true. There is an element of, I don't want to get into the realm of deplatforming people to the extent that it, it uh, lessens freedom of, or, or not, 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 not freedom of speech, but it lessens the conversation and the sharing of ideas. So where do you think is the, the balancing beam uh, between those two principles that we've spoken about now? I think that comes that there is a role in the marketplace of ideas and in the marketplace in general to provide a platform for any school of thought. And I think that in South Africa and the rest of the world in particular, um, left-wing ideologies have those platforms. And these platforms that do share these ideologies. Politics Web will publish anything inside its political spectrum. And I think there's a place for that in the market. But I, at the same time, then, I think there's a place in the market for extreme biased uh, media uh, also, I go into that I think all media is biased. Um, but like, for example, Daily Vox. I yeah. think that Daily Vox is valuable for what it is. It's a platform for people with left-wing ideals. Now, what I would like them to do is just be honest about it. They, If you go on the um, Daily Vox's site, they're not honest about their ideology. I actually think partly because they're not aware of their ideology. I think they've just told themselves this is the right thing to do. They don't give it a name. Some of them might know, okay, I'm a socialist, I'm a communist, but I doubt a lot of them know the real background, intellectual history of their ideology. The most they probably know is just, oh, Marx and Engels, maybe some Fanon, and I doubt they've ever read Fanon or Marx for that <laughs> No, no, you're right. Uh, they are useful in certain senses like that. 
Um, yeah, I must say, I think the Daily Vox is a steaming pile of garbage, to, to quote Trump, I th or failing pile of garbage. I really have read some of their articles, and it's quite ridiculous. Um, but then again, they may think the same thing about us, and I think in, in that sort of way, you know... Yeah, but they're wrong, and we're right. Right, we are correct, yes. And we are right, and we are correct. Uh, although yeah. some of us aren't right. You ain't right, you ain't right. Exactly, exactly. Although, I'd like to say one thing. I quite enjoy having a bit of a mediating view in the sort of libertarian field. I feel a lot of American libertarians in particular have, like, I don't know, man. As soon as Trump came to power, there was like this disease among libertarians in America to just abandon all principles in favor of the God Emperor Trump. And it's been driving me crazy. And yeah. so I think a bit of left-wing moderation is actually quite good within the libertarian movement sometimes. I don't know about you. What's the nice thing, though, is you don't even have to have proper left-wingers, because I would consider myself right-wing, because I... Because uh, there's a lot of different definitions of, you know, what right-wing and left-wing actually mean. I like to subscribe to the one which I was taught in political philosophy at UCT, which yeah. is right-wing means a preference for freedom. Okay. And that means that civil liberties and civil rights, like you know, letting uh, not stoning gay people and allowing same-sex marriage and all that, is a right-wing principle. I like that because it suits my narrative. Um, but yeah, um, I think that proper libertarians wouldn't. Uh, uh, these aren't proper libertarians who basically abandon these principles because it, it and isn't about you know not being left-wing enough. It's not being a libertarian enough. It's not understand. It's being inconsistent with their own principles. They've basically gotten to the point where it's freedom for me and nobody else. But the problem is, is that if you allow uh, um, freedom, uh, if you don't allow freedom for someone else, it will be reapplied to yourself and you will be oppressed somewhere along the line. You can't equip a government with the tools of oppression and just expect yourself to come off scot-free for your entire existence. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And this is why I get, it drives me nuts when... I see libertarians in America. So Trump does something, obviously, which a libertarian should be against. Like trade, for example. That, to me, is the most obvious uh, shortcoming of Trump is his trade policy. It's, it's idiocy. And the only, the only situation in, in which I'm prepared to support Trump's current trade policy is if it one day turns out that he gets a, a completely free trade agreement with the European Union and or China and or Canada, etc., etc. But I don't foresee that happening. Um, I think he actually enjoys tariffs. I think he thinks tariffs are, are a good thing in and of themselves and not um, and not a negotiating tool. But the problem is that people have gotten to a level of saying, oh no, he's just playing 4D chess. Mm -hmm. um, and, and eventually you have to, when you keep justifying like that, to quote Ben Shapiro, you end up saying, oh, he's playing 4D underwater backwards hungry, hungry hippos this time. Like there's actually a greater plan at, at stake here, you know? Yeah, that, I think the big problem with Trump and Trump supporters is that I agree with you. I think he does like tariffs, but I don't think he likes it from an ideological point of view. I don't think he's truly a dependency theorist. While he does actually use dependency theory ideas, um, people uh, have you done dependency theory? No, um, is that an economic theory? theory rather? Uh, well, to, for the anyone who doesn't know, dependency theory is a left-wing idea. Succinctly, it basically believes that trade impoverishes countries because it's a zero-sum game, so only one country can benefit in a trade deal. That's something which is very, very uneconomical. The only people who kind of believe stuff like that are Marxists, and dependency theory comes from Marxism. But the problem is, is that um, people, protectionists and people who support trade tariffs tend to be dependency theorists, 
the big thing about the penalty theory is it has a, a particular set of policy prescriptions, which, you know, pretty obviously um, stopping trade, uh, tariffs, um, just anything to regulate trade to a large extent. And they've been, uh, the penalty theory policies have been passed in a hang of lot of countries. It's not like a, this is not like, oh, no, it can't, true communism hasn't been tried. The penalty theory is quite simple, and it has been tried quite concretely in a hang of lot of countries, and it's failed everywhere. It's, um, I know some people try to argue that it worked in places like Japan, but um, I've written quite extensively, I wrote, uh, didn't even have to write extensively about it, it was very simple, wrote a short paper about how dependency th Japan succeeded post-World War II in spite of dependency theory rather than because of it, and showed how far they could have been if they hadn't adopted dependency theory policies. Um, the best case, though, is... Um, a lot of South America, all the socialist-leaning uh, South American countries, um, they adopted um, dependency theory, uh, theory um, policies. Brazil is one notable one. And it basically just led to heavy debt, um, shortages, uh, rising prices of essential goods. Just all in all, trade is good and stopping trade is bad. But uh, back to the original topic why I'm bringing this up. I think the reason that... Trump and the supporters support these policies is it's a tit-for-tat thing. It's, it's nothing to do with the actual utility of trade or the goodness of trade. It's purely that, oh, the, the Chinese are flooding our markets and not buying our goods, so therefore we have to not buy their goods. I'm like, no, but once if I want their goods? Like, I, it doesn't matter if they're not buying my goods. They're missing out on my wonderful stuff. Uh, but then, once they have some wonderful stuff that I want, I don't care if they don't, if I have something they, if they have something I want, I don't care if they don't buy any of my stuff. I'm already getting value out of buying stuff from them. Otherwise, I wouldn't buy it. Yeah. That's something that uh, people that are anti-trade don't understand. This tit-for-tat international politics, I think, is one of the, the stupidest things I've ever encountered. And we are not uh, immune from it in South Africa. To this day, I, I will never, ever forget the decision by Malusi Gigaba as uh, Home Affairs Minister to introduce requirements for New Zealand citizens that they must have a visa in order to visit South Africa. Why did this happen? Well, because New Zealand introduced visa requirements for South African citizens. That was the sole reason that he gave. Um, now, what does this mean? This means that if a New Zealander who does not live in, in Wellington, where the South African uh, consulate is or embassy, I'm unsure if we have one in Auckland or even on the... Imagine if you're a New Zealander living on the South Island of New Zealand, right? Mm -hmm. You have to travel all the way to the North Island first, get your visa, somehow find a, a place to stay there while you're getting your visa done, which presumably would take a long time, particularly because it's South Africa. Uh, and only once your visa is approved and you've paid for that and you've signed up a whole lot of paperwork will you visit South Africa. Now, if you were going on holiday, let's say, why would you choose a country where you had to do that as opposed to a country where you could not do that? Perhaps mm -hmm. you want to see South Africa uh, in particular for some reason. But for, for, some for Yeah, but for some reason. I mean, like, but, but it's much easier to go to a place where you don't need a visa. And I just thought it was one of the stupidest things ever. But it's, it's this tit-for-tat thing that you mentioned. And I think it comes from, you know, I've, I've been studying the ideology of the, the very far right. Because I think it's, it's important to understand their reasoning. And I also think it's important because I think they're remarkably close to the very far left. They just approach it from a different perspective. But the policies themselves are very similar. And that's an important thing to understand. And 
they view the economy as a nationalistic endeavor. And I think this is why. They're hostile to the outside world, and they believe that they self-sufficiency is this hugely important thing. Uh, I'd be interested to read your essay. I must say I'm unfamiliar with Japan's economy post-World War II. I just know that it, it expanded quite rapidly, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my view. I think it's this tit-for-tat government policy is one of the stupidest things that has ever come about. Yeah. I think that you've hit the nail on the head when, it, um, when you talk about um, how they view the, nation, uh, na uh, the economy as a na nationalistic entity. And it's all about the nation. It's all about the team. Not just thinking it's a problem <laughs> where it's being too concerned with team sports over you know, something much, more, uh, much nicer like chess. <laughs> I'm not a team sports guy. Um, so I couldn't think, uh, and I don't play individual sports either. So the only thing I could think of was chess. Halo <laughs> um, is a sport, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I think that, that that's the problem. It's, they see themselves, maybe it comes from, I think some, some psychologists could probably psychoanalyze and say that it comes from some deep-seated insecurity that they have to appeal to the nation state because they don't feel any sort of worth as an individual. But it doesn't even have to be that. So I think it's just we're naturally tribalists as human, humans. And But the problem is, is that... It comes in with the altruism, actually. And altruism has often got very positive connotations, unless you're an objectivist, and then you rightly will say that we mustn't sacrifice ourselves on the altar of altruism. But it also comes to the thing that so many people, thinking that they're virtuous in sacrificing themselves and serving the collective, but if it's at their expense, why the hell are you doing it? Like, I can understand if it's something more personal, like a mother sacrificing her life for a child. Um, this is why I'm like not completely an egoist, um, I, because I, there is people do naturally sacrifice themselves for others. But I don't understand. Well, I, I think I understand, but I don't really get why. Uh, uh, I don't think it's justified for young men to sacrifice their lives for the glory of the nation state. It's stupid, and I think it's the epitome of irrationality. It's actually fulfills the actual definition of irrationality to actually sacrifice yourself for some silly thing like a nation. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that because I think that would be going into the realm of psychology where I'm grossly unqualified and, and under-read. Aren't uh, we all? <laughs> yeah, well, unless you've been studying psychology, then maybe I'd, <laughs> I'd have no, a... I think they're most of all. <laughs> yeah, look, okay, that's another thing we can talk about perhaps. Jeepers, dude, I've seen some crazy things... Uh, from psychology departments. They've also been possessed. They've been truly taken over by postmodernism in some places. Um, but uh, to go back, you know, you know it's, it's a tricky one. I can certainly think of some wars, which I think in the greater perspective of history were the right wars to fight. Mm. The most obvious, the most agreeable one in my mind seems World War II, um, yeah. which is funny. The only people I have ever heard in my entire life saying that they wish the United States hadn't intervened in World War II are alt-right in America. Um, mm. I wonder why. <laughs> um, but, it, yeah. but they're also it, very much, what is the word? Uh, I want to say isolationist, but they're, you know, they're one of the vast number of uh, pe uh, peoples in America who are against wars, foreign wars, are the sort yeah. of more nationalist right. Because um, you can actually call them isolationists. The ultra-right are ideologically isolationists. They don't want to trade. They don't. They, they want, want immigration. The borders. 
and they don't like interventionist wars, which I will actually, I agree with you. I do think that there's an argument to be made for World War II, but also keep in mind that at least for a lot of countries, it was a volunteer army. Yes, exactly. I don't, yeah, so that's a big difference. I think that volunteer armies are very different. And I think that I'm more on the Martin School of Thought that I do believe that there are such things as just wars. I just believe they're a lot rarer than he thinks they are. Yeah, Martin, um, Martin seems think to think... The one I could name is um, World War II. Martin seems to think that basically any, any non-free society on Earth is illegitimate and therefore we should go bomb them. And like, I, yeah. I agree with him that they're illegitimate. But the thing is, is that what does bombing accomplish? Yeah, That's well, the main thing. It's not, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it's not that simple is really what I would say. Um, for yeah. example, you know, North Korea, that is, in my opinion, the most evil government on the face of the earth at the moment. Um, it, it's truly horrible. I must tell you a quick story. I read an autobiography of a North Korean defector. Um, the book is called The Girl's Seven Names. And she, when she was very, very young, uh, walked over the frozen river into China from North Korea. And the book tells her story of living in China and then eventually getting to South Korea and smuggling her family from the north to the south. It's one of the most harrowing, sad books I've ever read. Really, really interesting, though. Um, after reading that, and when you read the experiences of these people, it's, you really see how grossly evil uh, the government of North Korea is. And so, okay, so then you can ask yourself the question, let's say the United States tomorrow invaded North Korea. The U.S. has got a much more powerful army than they do. They'll probably make mincemeat of them in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, but then when you think of the broader s scheme of things, you think, okay, but if America did that, who would respond? Would the North Koreans fire nuclear warheads at South Korea? Uh, would China back North Korea? And when you start thinking of all the ifs and buts, then you sort of realize that it's just not that simple. And I think that's where, you know, people who are more neoconservative in their foreign policy get things a bit wrong. I think that's the main thing, though, is that I think that you can have a principle, and this is a big thing which um, my ideology is kind of around, is that there are ideals and there are principles that we should try to uphold, but life isn't a game. Well, it is, well, I like to think of it as a game, but um, it does, life doesn't make sense. Life doesn't have these set-down rules that we all understand, that we're all playing on the same uh, same uh, field, and we know... Uh, and. Well, we do have certain overarching principles, it just takes one person to violate it, and then everything goes out the window. So you can't basically say, oh, well, okay, bad government, I'm going to invade, as you said, because there are consequences, and, and we don't even have to go to uh, North Korea here, because I think North Korea is one of those cases where we should definitely not do military action against them so blatantly, because it, the nukes are actually not even a factor. The nukes are... Uh, uh, here's the big thing about nukes. Nukes are scary, yeah, but the real danger in um, there, even without the nukes, is all the artillery in North Korea aimed at Seoul. Yes, that's, that's true. And you can't deflect artillery. You can actually, if you're good enough, you can disable, uh, you can knock a missile out of the sky. It's hard, but it is possible. No one has been able to consistently knock artillery out of the sky short of some sort of science fiction energy shield which don't exist sadly um 
the, the North Korea literally has a gun pointed at so, uh, South Korea's head. And this is why we can't just mess around with this shit. It, there has to be a diplomatic option because, well, of the old Cold War thing of mutually assured destruction. The, um, but the other op- the thing is uh, Afghanistan. So on paper, we want to go into Afghanistan, you know, bring peace and prosperity in the American way to all these people who have been oppressed by the Taliban and their dreadful religion. Um, but historically, we can look at it, no one has tamed Afghanistan. Afghanistan is the most untamable piece of land on the planet. Yeah. The, the British were, were literally whipped out of it with their tails between their legs. Tails, not literally. Um, the Russians? When they tried to, yeah, the Russians as well, the Americans as well. And I'm pretty sure you can go back in history and other people have done it as well. Um, it's not, the terrain isn't good enough. The cultures are too, uh, too, uh, too warlike and don't like each other too much. It's an untamable territory. And it isn't even like South Africa, which you could kind of fix just by breaking it up. You can't even break up Afghanistan to make it peaceful. It's just a whole, the whole country is a quagmire. Honestly, um, I'm not suggesting as a solution, but if you wanted to tame Afghanistan, the only thing that would work is killing every single person. And you shouldn't do that because that's kind of defeats the point. It's also but that's just showing how bad it is as a country. And it doesn't matter how much you want to free these people, how much you want to help them, how bleeding hard you are, you can't help them. So there's no point. There's a very good Sun Tzu quote, which I will par- butcher my paraphrasing, but it basically goes, only fight the battles you can win. Yeah, uh, that's a really good, uh, succinct way of putting, putting it, you know, that wars are just not that simple. Uh, funny enough, I, I recently met the first person from Afghanistan or who, I've, who I've ever met, and he was actually a very cool guy. Um, and they've got their own cricket league coming up, which is quite nice to see. So as much of a quagmire it is, I, I, I don't know, at least when I see things like that, I, I sort of get a little bit hopeful. Um, yeah. But you're right, unfortunately, yeah, um, this is one thing where I agree with the fallists a little bit. Um, when it comes to colonialism, there are certain countries like that and a few others, where it has just been a, a quagmire of a quagmire. I love the example of Namibia. You know, Namibia's got the Caprivi Strip, yep. which is probably one of the most arbitrarily drawn borders I've ever heard of. And this was drawn, I believe, by uh, Otto von Caprivi, a German colonial guy. I can't remember exactly his position. And he was trying to access the Zambezi River so as to make a trade corridor to go to the other side of Africa. Too bad he didn't realize that the Victoria Falls um, <laughs> existed. Um, but when you draw borders like this and you include, like you said, arbitrary groups of people in and all over the place, you, you end up with this sort of quagmire. Um, no, I'm interested to quickly ask, you said you, you could solve South Africa by splitting it up. What did you mean by that? Well, the thing is, I think 1910 was a mistake. I don't, I think that we're a classic post-colonial um, example of why the fact, artificial borders were a bad thing. The fact, the fact, hang on, I'm not 100% sure what happened in 1910. Are you referring oh, to sorry. the Union of South uh, Africa? The, the Union of South okay, Africa. Okay. So when the, uh, all the colonies and all the other territories and the border republics were all put into one territory. Okay. Um, I think it was, I am a big believer in spontaneous order. And as much as I would like to ideally be an anarchist, I can't be because I do believe that nation states to a large extent are a, a result of spontaneous order. Not all of them, though. And I think South Africa is one of the examples of an artificial country, which basically have a lot of people who would rather be independent 
forced under one political entity. And the thing is, stuff like that can actually function for, for at least a little bit if your political system is very, very lenient, if you have like a confederacy or an empire, which basically lets independent territories do what they want. If we were a proper federation, we could probably be like a little bit fine. But the problem is, as I was saying in an argument to this person this morning, which was trying to claim South Africa's united, that the, uh, there was just such a stinker when Ramaphosa was elected a leader of the ANC because he wasn't Zulu. That's not the sign of a healthy democracy. Hang on a second. Democracy. Yeah. I've, I've heard this before. I've heard this sort of in, in tribal conflict within the ANC. Where, can I just ask, what, what basis is there for saying that? I haven't actually seen anyone make any oblique statements from the ANC. I've seen a few Facebook commenters saying, oh, we can't have this vendor guy here. But besides from a few social media morons, do you think there's real basis to that? So the thing is, it is said by ANC members off record. So the thing oh, is, okay. so obviously we have records of it, but I'm saying off official record. Because, you know, if, well, can you imagine if someone from the DA just suddenly stood up and said, oh, I don't think we should have Indians in the DA he would be annihilated. And the same goes for the ANC. As much as they, they're done very well at uniting disparate organ, uh, factions, they are very good at it, but they still, underneath the surface, there's a lot of people complaining. And I do remember that when um, Zuma was ousted and Ramaphosa went in, there was in the media and newspapers and also social media. You don't underestimate social media. I know that a lot of times it's a loud minority even loud minorities do inform the majority of the pension to a large extent. But um, there was newspaper articles and stuff about how the Zulu factions are pissed off about it. A lot of people aren't going to put their names on it because they don't want to get kicked out of the party. But at the same time, it's not really about the ANC. It's more about um, the actual non-partisan voters, which actually do make up the majority of the country. And that Zulu... The, uh, um, there's a bit. We're not going to actually see the results until the next election. Yeah. Well, if there is another election, um, but unless the ANC does something radical, you'll probably see the Zulu vote drop for the ANC because there's a big tri There's a lot of tribal tension, and actually, I see this. Um, and it goes even more that um, with this VBS thing. So it's actually a vendor institution. Yes, and that's a right. Lot of yeah. A lot of vendor people are freaking out about how they it's being targeted and stuff because it feels as a front against their tribe, and it's a uh, so it, this tribe means a lot, and this is the big thing is that a democracy, for good or bad, needs to eliminate tribes. And I'm not only talking about um, African tribes. I'm talking about any sort of ethnic group that people put ahead of the basically political unity. And the thing is that I'm not saying this is the ideal. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, st a, a person who believes that democracy is intrinsically good. I do believe that it is a good co system to allow for political compromise. But um, if a democracy is to work, you need to have relatively ethnic secularism, I'll call it, that people can identify as their ethnic groups, but it mustn't matter as much as political unity and forming good institutions. So we see that in America, they have a lot of ethnic groups and tribes, but it doesn't actually, um, as much as some uh, uh, pundits, might, uh, pundits might act like race relations in America are falling apart, to, mo 
to the largest extent, they're not really. They're kind of united. An African-American, will most of the time, will see themselves as American before black. And that's essential for democracy. The problem in South Africa is people will see themselves as Zulu before South African. And it's and to a large extent, and then they'll see themselves black before South African. And it's to a large extent, uh, and um, we have a party to blame for that to a large extent. But also it goes further than that. It's just that these tribes exist. There are different political factions. In a natural system, they would have formed their own nations. That's true. And I, I must say, I've often played out the hypothetical scenario, what if Africa was never colonized in terms of what countries would there be today? Um because of the uh, ethnic diversity of Africa, the, just the sheer number of different groups. I, okay, I suppose now thinking about Europe, there were also a huge number of different people groups for the size of the area. A lot of people forget that Germany was once the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. Uh, but eventually, the sort of unity that formed was all the people who spoke a dialect of German and I say German with quotation marks around it because the German language was only standardized a bit later. Um, it, I often wonder what the map of Africa would look like and, and how people... I wonder if, you know, things like Nguni tribes might band together. It, it's like an interesting hypothetical scenario to see what things would look like. But I quite like what you said there when you said ethnic secularism. The problem that South African politics has with regards to that is that we are very ethnically religious, it seems. Mm. Um when because uh, I liked a quote from someone recently when they said, "The ANC is not really a democratic party; they are more a majoritarian party." Now, obviously, democracy means that the majority rules, but uh, that's why I prefer systems of democracy like the United States, where they have fifty states and every state gets two senators. Doesn't matter how big, how small. Uh, it's so that the majority cannot bully the minority and politicians still have to appeal to basically all of the 50 states. Um, now, back in the founding days of the United States, that was a, that was a very important thing because the, the people were sort of more um, patriotic to their states than to the federal government. So in order for the federal government to gain legitimacy, they had to get a very large number of people who would normally have been more patriotic to their individual states to vote for someone to lead the federal government. A lot of people have criticized the Electoral College, and I think it definitely has some flaws. I think the fact that you can win without getting a majority is without doubt its major flaw. But I like the model upon which the means by which you have to win an election is not just to get a, a simple majority of the votes. Because if you live in a diverse country like ours, where one group is 50% plus one of the population, all you have to do is appeal to them and you can use any disgusting rhetoric to do that and that gives birth to the sort of politics that we have now I think um, talking about electoral systems um, to pre preface, preface this um, I think that my ideals for South Africa besides you know just utopian stuff I think the top one would be a breakup of South Africa into many more natural states and I don't mean ethno states because I don't think they will be ethno for example I think that a hypothetical Cape Republic would be extremely cosmopolitan. I do think there will be some ethno-states, but I think that the places which would be are currently basically ethno-states already because of the majority of the population there and that there's no one of any other race living there. Um, that would be the ideal because it's, it's more natural and I think the breakup of states is something is a good precedent for the world. Um, the second ideal compromise would be um, a, confe a confederacy 
So basically, same banner, but we're basically independent states with just an overarching body, um, kind of like a unifying factor, maybe with an, a, a united military and stuff like that. Um, then a federation, which we kind of have, but basically just more strengthened. And hopefully, basically built around um, uh, with a revised constitution that basically just makes it you can't amend the property rights clause, and basically <laughs> just my put insert my ideology into South Africa's policies. Um, but the other thing is a type of editorial system that I think would work very well in South Africa and the world for that matter, and it goes back to my view of what democracy is supposed to be. Democracy isn't the ideal system. It's not something that you should aim for. It's a compromise. It's a means to an end. Yes, exactly. It's a co- but the biggest thing is that um, I love this. Um, it's a actually a misquote of Bismarck, but he said it in a lot longer words as Germans often do. Um, but it's be- uh, the misqu- common misquote is politics is the art of compromise. And I think that's extremely correct. It says that we all butting heads and we all have our own agendas and our own goals. And politics and the economy are basically ways in which humans can interact nonviolently. Now, that, now that's a view of politics if you don't believe um, – that's a non-Machiavellian view of politics because Machiavelli will just state that war is, politi- is politics by other means. And I do agree with that as well. I'm a big fan of Machiavelli. But um, – I think that we, uh, to be a good politician is to try to avoid conflict and to know, but also to know which conflicts, uh, when conflict would be better. And that's all about compromise. Compromise is trying to get the best results for yourself without getting the ideal ones because you, most of the time you can't get the ideal. But democracy is a compromise. It's beca- not because, oh, the majority rules, because that's not how good democracies work. No good democratic country just allows majority to r- run roughshod over the minority. They have systems in place, and democracy is basically supposed to be that we recognize that there's these vociferous, narcissistic sociopaths in our society called politicians who, without a political system, would be warlords. And the problem is we don't want warlords, because warlords, for all the people might say, warlords are not nice people. Warlords act or they are authoritarian. They are borderline totalitarian. In places like in Somalia with warlords, in that small little block that they control, they control everything, like 1984-style everything. Even have like CCTV cameras and stuff. Um, we don't want warlords. So instead, we vote for politicians because we know that they're going to rise to power regardless. But at least this gives us some influence to which dictator gets in charge. And hopefully with some other things, we can stop them from being a dictator because if the democratic system is a little bit better – if they want to keep winning the treasury and you know access to the treasury, they have to appeal to us, and that's why that, that's basically why nations fail in the the book. Um, the um, oh yeah, so the, the the so the system I want, the electoral system I want. Sorry to get you to no, no, it's, time to get to it's this. All right, like, go ahead. Um, say a lot of stuff I wanted to say, but I like this voting system. It's called a ranked pair voting. Oh, and yes. It's basically you don't vote for one candidate, you rank candidates in order of preference. And then the person who wins isn't the person that the most people voted as their first candidate. It tallies up through some algorithm. I'm not a massy person, so I can't give the algorithm. But basically goes to which candidate the most people wouldn't mind to have. So yeah. 
Yeah. I like it's, that very much. I've seen a few alternative voting systems. I do know about the ranked ballot, and I quite enjoy that. I think there are some countries that employ a system of that in some electoral areas. Um, my only concern about the ranked ballot is logistically how difficult would that mm. be? Do you think it would complicate the process? So I think that in a country like in places like Europe and America, we have an educated population, an education with an average intelligence, it works completely fine. But it's uh, it would require more voter education in South Africa because some people might get offended. I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast will get offended by it. But South African, a lot of South Africans are very uneducated. They don't understand politics at the best of times. Um, we have so many spoiled ballots, not because they're doing it on purpose, just because they don't know that how you're supposed to fill in the ballot. So I do think there's going to be problems. Um, so there's two. Uh, I have two hats on for this. My one hat says, screw stupid people. Politics should be for people. If you don't understand how to play the game, don't play the game. The other side thing is, it's just that, yeah, I do understand it's a problem. But I think there are ways of simplifying the system to make it logistically better. Now, I, um, the, the, the way to count it is easy. We have computers, so we don't have to worry about that. I think the problem would be the voter themselves not knowing how to fill it in. But I think that you, you can go so far until you basically have to just start ignoring stupid people. How about this? How about a, how about a, So I very much like a two-round presidential system. I don't know how it would work in South Africa because the problem is that we have a parliamentary system where you vote for a party, not a candidate. Yeah. Um, but I very much enjoy, for example, what happened in France. So I think had they not had a two-round system in France, it would have been interesting to see what happened. But the nice thing about a two-round system, so in this system, let's say, the if nobody gets more than... In fact, no, I'm going to rephrase this. Uh, yeah, actually, let's do the 50% method. Okay, so if nobody gets more than 50% in the first round, there's a final round, a runoff election, where it's just the top two candidates, and those two, you can only vote between those two. So it does end up being a more like a, of the top two, which one do you hate the least kind of scenario for if you didn't vote for either of them. Um, and that's what happened in France. I think Marine Le Pen was second or first. I think she was second in the first round. Um, but then she got absolutely smashed in the second round because a lot of people would much rather prefer a centrist like Macron to quite an extreme right-winger like Marine Le Pen. Um, now, I often wonder, if we had something like that in South Africa, what would the result be? Uh, obviously, the ANC does have a grip on the country. They have more than 50% of the vote, so I think they would end up winning. Um, but if we got to a scenario where our politics were a lot more fragile and we didn't really know who would win, I would be very, very intrigued to see if, let's say, for example, an EFF member, who they would rather vote for. Um, obviously, the EFF are a lot more ideologically similar to the ANC than, for example, the DA. But the EFF do have a very, very deep hate of the ANC. Um, there's been a lot of talk about like an EFF-ANC alliance, and as of yet, we haven't quite seen that. I think it might only come if land expropriation ends up happening. Yeah. Um, but the two-round voting system is one I've really, really enjoyed. Although I'm not quite sure how I'd interview it, how I'd um, put it in place in South Africa. Yeah. I like the sound of it as well. It's uh, anything that basically adds more for compromise. Because yeah. uh, the government's supposed to basically just be someone that we just don't, we all don't mind. We're never gonna, you're never supposed to love your government. If you love your government, you're doing it wrong. You're an idiot, basically. Um, but if a government that's meh, is, I, uh, I think is great. South Africa, I don't think it would be a solution. As you said, we people vote um, for lo uh, on loyalty grounds. So I think that the NC would win. 
um, in, unless we became more fragile. So that's the main thing. But at the same time, it goes to the basically thing, and this is one of my problems with um, moderate, moderate politics, is they, especially the way the DA phrases things a lot, where people talk about, oh, well, we just need to get the right leader in charge. Yeah, like, I hate that. But you can't <laughs> count on that. Like, yeah, you can't, that's just like literally say, like someone saying, oh, sir, how are we going to win this war? He's like, we're going to win it. That's how we'll win it. It's, it's, it's nonsensical and stupid solution. It's, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's how politics works in South Africa a lot of time. Stupid and nonsensical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it is just like that. It's like saying, how are we going to win the war? We're going to fight harder. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, great attitude, but like, that's not going to help us win. Um, yeah. so at least I... fighting harder is, at least it's slightly better. Like, okay, if I fight harder, it can lead to better results. When what they're saying is the solution, the, the method to get my goal is the goal itself. Yes. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's a circular, circular sort of reasoning. Alrighty, now let's perhaps, uh, we're almost getting to an hour here. I'd like, you know, I often ask my guests, uh, I think it's an interesting discussion, how we're going to vote next year. So, um, are you, have, have you been thinking about that very much? I've been thinking about this a lot and I'll explain, perhaps you explain what your philosophy is going to be on voting next year and I'll explain what mine is and we can compare notes. So I, I'm going to use the, the ugly word. I am a little bit more of a pragmatist about this. Oh, no, no, I didn't have to use that word. I'll say I'm a realist about this in the more Machiavellian sense. Okay. But I do think, and this is something that Martin actually does agree with. So you, you can forgive me, Martin, when you listen to this. I'm not a pragmatist. I'm a Machiavellian. Um, I do believe that you should use any tool uh, that if your enemies are using voting against you, it's you can use voting against them. And I think that if you're living within an unjust political system, you kind of being given room to do unjust things. So no, I do agree with anarchists who say that you are doing a bad thing by voting because you're kind of buying into the entire system and you are committing aggression and stuff. But at the same time, you can also use a self-defense argument that people are doing it to me, I need to do it to defend myself. And at the same time, life isn't simple. We don't live in a world where the NAP is actually enforceable, so we can't just live our entire lives by it. We have to. You, sometimes you have to put down the dog with the rabies, uh, no matter <laughs> if it's its fault. Yeah. So, so to the question of how I'm going to vote, I am so angry with the DA. I'm actually like I know they're not. I actually have to think rationally. They're not as bad as I say they are. But the problem is I feel personally betrayed. I, and this is the reason I tell them. They say, oh, why don't you criticize the other parties as much? And I'm saying it's because, uh, firstly, I do, but, like, it's because it's kind of self-explanatory. Like, everybody knows the NC is we, corrupt. We, everybody we, knows the EFF is starless. We don't expect this kind of thing from the DA, even though we expect it from the other parties. That's the thing. Exactly. Like, and I'll tell, as I told some people at uh, Lipton, I criticize you because I love you. Now, I don't even love them anymore. That's the um, and that's why I've actually stopped criticizing to a large extent because I've just lost hope for them, and the reason is is because they've become completely majoritarian because of reasons we mentioned earlier. They've become diluted by so many people who aren't liberals, and the thing is that people say, "Oh no, but we have to compromise, you know, for the sake of South Africa, oh, because you know liberalism can't be enforced." And I'm like saying, if you don't think that liberalism fits in a South African context, I'm not going to vote for you because firstly, I think it can. I think it is the best solution. So we're already fundamentally disagreeing. I believe, uh, but at the same time, I do agree 
politics start to compromise. But that compromise doesn't happen at the Manifesto level. That compromise happens in Parliament when you have the EFF on the far left and you have the ANC on the centre-left, and the DA should be putting in a right of centre to far right in the good sense of the word, not the Nazi sense of the word, um, alternative in there, and then all the par uh, parliament members are supposed to be bustling up against each other, and then they come up with a compromise based on all their voting. It's not supposed to be something where, like, oh, oh well, what are they going to think? Oh, no, uh, they're going to disagree with us, so we should put this law in, um, you know, with their co uh, anticipating what compromises they'll want. Uh, you, you're giving up ground to them immediately. The EFF doesn't do that. The ANC doesn't do that. What you sh the DA should be doing is putting out a full, proper, radical libertarian-slash-liberal policy in Parliament, and then let the ANC and the EFF argue with it, then negotiate with them and say, okay, we remove this clause, but if you're allowed to keep this one, that's how politics is supposed to work. It's supposed to be about this negotiation. The problem is if you're going to give up on the negotiation before you even go in it, that's not compromise, that's capitulation. And I what? can't even say the DA is capitulated because I don't think they're truly liberals anymore. I don't think Moosey is a liberal. I don't think he's a good politician either. I think on every level he's a terrible leader. Um, and also you've got people like Van Damme in there who just have completely destroyed all sense of liberal integrity that they had. What do you think about... Can I, can I just interrupt yeah. you quickly? What do you think about the argument that the DA really does have very strong liberal principles, but the way that they speak about it doesn't sound like it to us because they have to sell their message in some other way? The reason I say this is because I've now interviewed two DA MPs, and every single time I talk to them, they sound like us. They sound like libertarians. And then I say, well, then what's going on? Why are you guys saying all this stuff? And they're like, yeah, well, you know, you can't really, you can only get so far by beating the, the libertarian drum. What do you think about that argument? I think it's bullshit because they've never tried. And the thing is, is and also I think they're saying that because they're a little bit afraid of their own, uh, of, the, uh, of basically rocking the boat and getting rid of their um, cash cow. I think that, I bet you that if they got fired, they would immediately basically renounce all those claims. They're probably going to, they're going to might if they want to comment and disagree with me now, but wait until they get, uh, they either resign or get fired. Um, they're all going to come out. I, if you get them drunk, I think they would also admit it. <laughs> well, speaking of which, I've heard off the record, and this is hearsay, so I'm, I'm not going to mention any names here. But well, this is a public podcast, so I showed you what I'm getting at. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, okay, perhaps not. But I get the feeling that there are some people within the DA who are very frustrated with their own party. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I, th uh, I think you don't, that's not even hearsay. Like, that can be said. I, I know people who are, and I don't have to say their names because there's a lot of them. Like, are they not going to purr? Are they not going to have to search through their ranks for a hundred people to purge? Um, I was one of the people. I used to be a DA member. A lot of people don't know, uh, forget this. I used to be a DA member. I left for a reason. It's because that I want a principle, and it's not only principle. I can deal with someone who's more Machiavellian. I can deal with someone who's like, okay, I'm going to pretend to be like a, a centrist, but you know, when we're in power, I'm actually going to um, put in liberal policies. But it's not only that. I think the DA, even from a centrist marketing point of view, is very bad at it. I think they elect very bad 
spokespeople. I think Musi's a very bad spokesperson because he's very unclear and he targets political campaigns which are very, very dumb. Like when he basically guilt-tripped uh, guilt his wife in public. That is unacceptable. I, I, I don't think any, any person with any sort of class should support a man like that. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll also say I think that the, mention, the thing he said about his wife was quite crazy. But but let's just talk about uh, what, what I'm trying to say is basically what I meant to ask you was who you're going to be voting for next year and why. And and how about this? I'll, I'll, I'll give you a brief description of my view on next year's election and then you can counter it with what you think. Okay, cool. So here's my view. Previously, I did the usual thing and I said, okay, of all the political parties we have, which one is the closest to my personal ideology? And I'll vote for that one. Very basic logic. I think, unfortunately, the fact that expropriation without compensation is on the table is uh, changing that up to a whole new ball game. And to me, this is the thing which is going to kill us. Uh, you know, you only need to look at any country which has done this in the past to see why. So for me, this is the important issue. And I'm actually, I've become a single issue voter as a result of it. Um, so I'm looking for a party that I know is going to defend property rights the most. I, at this point in time, think I'm going to be voting COPE. The reason for that is that I have seen in the debate about EWC no more of a bigger fighter than Mosiwa Tera Lakota on this issue. I think he has been an absolute champion. He has been uh, abused with horrible racial rhetoric I've seen online. Uh, and, but he has kept fighting, and I think he's an incredible guy. And I think there's, there's a double-edged sword to this. On the one, he needs to be rewarded for fighting this hard, so I think he, he truly deserves to get more votes. Likewise, the DA being all soft and like sort of shying away from it, at least when they speak about these sort of things, we all know what happened when uh, Adam Strutz spoke in Parliament. Mm. They need to be punished for that. I think they need mm -hmm. to lose a few votes to catch a damn wake-up call. So that's that's my outlook at the moment, and it might change. We still have many months. Yeah. I think I think we basically actually have the same outlook here. So now I I do think from a utility point of view, if the DA took a stronger stand in favour of um, well, it, well against EWC and in favour of property rights, they have more clout to be able to push it forward. So from that point of view, strengthening them is actually better for the single issue. But as you said. They haven't. I don't think that they're actually strong, strong enough to do that. I think that their political willpower is tiny. So I think there's so many internal divisions in the DA, and I think that so many people in the DA don't actually know what they're supposed to be standing for. Just so like I bet you Van Dam is pro expropriation without compensation. I'm not gonna. I'm pretty sure I've seen her tweet stuff which is in favour of it. I'm not gonna swear by that. I know that she's pro uh, BE, and I think that that's immediately a red flag. Um, and um, at the same time, I also think we need to punish the DA. So, but to answer your main question, uh, at the moment, I'm going to vote for COPE for the same reason that you've mentioned. I'm a little bit worried about the people other than him. I think that the other partisans might be a little bit of a problem. But you can influence institutions to become more formalized. In fact, maybe it might be a bit good to not even just vote for COPE. It might be good to actually start going to COPE and joining COPE to start, you know, ensuring that more than just Lakota is a the only liberal and pro property rights person in the party, because we know there are break off the ANC, which is basically anyone who just didn't like Zuma, um, 
but uh, which is a problem. That's the same reason the DA fallen. We're just lucky that the cult of personality that is formed in their leadership is seen, is a good guy. Um, for my on a local level, though, I'm not voting for Cape on a local level. I'm voting for the Cape Party on a local level because, as much as I don't think that secession is going to happen from a democratic point of view. I do think that uh, if I can contribute to basically rocking the boat on a local level, also to, to punish the DA, because I really don't like how the DA has been running things locally, um, and also to show that, uh, and I keep saying that I don't think South Africa should exist, so I, I should <laughs> put my money where my mouth is and vote for a party that wants to destroy South Africa. Yeah, I quite like South Africa, um, <laughs> but uh, but I know I suppose what what you mean by that. In interest, are there any uh, councillors in the city of Cape Town who are members of the Cape Party? So um, none who are elected. So what happened is in this one, I think it was a Mullington Ward. Oh yes, uh, yeah, you know the story. I do. So, yeah. um, Tell it for the listeners. So yeah, for the listeners. Um, they were, the actual incumbent uh, councillor for the DA for the DA left the DA and became a Cape Party member. Now, she was no longer a, a DA member then because in the most party constitutions, there's a clause called only members can serve. So if you're elected as a DA member and you leave the DA, um, you, uh, you lose your position. Now, um, some countries don't have this. Some countries actually have floor crossing, which is um, really fun. I like floor crossing, especially, but that only really works when you vote for individuals. So actually, I do think it should account for ward councillors. But um, stop digressing. Um, she joined the K Party and she ran again in um, a by-election. And they almost won. Now, the reason they didn't is because partisan voting is so intrusive in South Africa. It's not only... We mustn't just accuse ANC members of this. DA members are cultists as well. All uh, the... Um, People who vote for a particular party are fanatical about it. It takes a very special South African to vote with their head rather than their appendix. <laughs> Which can be removed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, we should start removing them. That, that's the main thing. Um, that, that is, uh, um, yeah, that, that, succinctly that. So basically the K party almost got a position. But they are new. They are radical. Um, to the most voters, they're very eccentric, and I must say they are pretty eccentric. Uh, sensationalist parties just aren't just the, the norm. But I do think there's um, if uh, I, when I'm voting for them, I'm not voting for them to be administrated. I know that they're not going to win a majority in the Western Cape, and I don't know what will happen if they did. It would be extremely odd. Um, I think they would just call a referendum and then shit will hit the fan. Um, but um, the main reason to vote for them is basically just to slowly start showing an that secession is possible in our lifetime, just through symbolic support. And I know, and as I said earlier, the secession isn't going to come through democracy, but democracy and politics is very symbolic. And if the K Party, for instance, starts gaining a lot of councillors and gains a lot of seats on the local um, uh, legislature, it shows a lot. It will start showing cessation is a serious thing because people respect political seats. Yeah, you know, I haven't thought about Cape secession too much because I've never thought that there was a huge enough desire for it. There are without doubt parts of the world where secession is a serious matter. Catalonia and Europe, Scotland and the UK. Um, the fact that although Scotland voted against independence, 
it was very close. It was only by about 2%, or was it 5%? I can't quite remember. But, but it was not more than, like, it was not a landslide by any means. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that the Scottish National Party is still, I think, the biggest party in Scotland. Um, I, I've, I haven't seen that. It, nobody's really spoken about that for the Cape. So it, 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 to me, voting for the Cape Party is just a bit, it's a bit like a middle finger to general politics. But I, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, which, is, I, which is always a good thing. But <laughs> perhaps. Um, it's, it's a little bit more productive than a spoiled ballot. Um, <laughs> yes, I agree with you there. I like that view. But the bi- so, but the big thing is, is that we do historically have um, indep- uh, a, a an actual justification for independence. We used to be an independent state. Well, we were a colony, but like we all were, so you can't really say, oh well, it was a colony of Britain. Well, we could become well, fix the UK first, and then now we can become a territory again. Um, but uh, so historically, we have been independent in the past. And also, we are a lot more ethnically, we're very ethnically different than the rest of South Africa. Uh, we have most of the population of Afrikaners live in the, uh, the area that the Cape Republic wants to claim. There's also, there's a lot more interest than you would think, and not racially um, exclusive. I've seen people from all race groups actually supporting secession, and because they believe, because they agree that because it's not only Cape that wants to secede. Zululand wants to secede as well. Transkei wants to secede. Does Transkei um, want to secede? Hang on a second. We're, I've never what? heard that before. I've never heard about there's that. A, there's a lot of people in the Transkei who want to secede. There's a... So along the Fisher River and all that. Yeah. Um, the well, other thing, though, is that the, a, a large portion of Sutus want to be incorporated into the Lesotho, because that's their actual ancestral people. Um, a lot of the Tswanas want to be incorporated into Botswana. Um... There's a, and that will end up happening. And there's also a few people, a lot of people, uh, will basically just be put to ethnic groups that historically belonged to ethnic groups because of colonial borders and all that, basically just got split them down the middle. So some were in South Africa, some were in Botswana, and they want to go back to their people. And um, so it's not only secession, it's also basically ceding territory over to other countries. And mm. South Africa needs to be completely redrawn. And not only South Africa, the whole of Africa needs to be redrawn because these are artificial borders which have, which to a large extent have caused so much, so much of African uh, conflict. I think that um, you might know from a lot of my conversations that I'm a big British Empire supporter. I find it fascinating. <laughs> I find it very interesting and very fun. It's a very, very fascinating part of history. But at the same time, when reading about Biafra and the Nigerian Civil War, it's unforgivable what Britain did to, to Nigeria and what they did afterwards, you know, backing the Nigerian government against uh, the Iba. Um, and Nigeria is one of those big examples of an African country which has been decimated by colonialism, not because of some sort of mythical extraction of resources and some sort of totalitarian state, because colonialism is actually on the surface, with a few exceptions, the Portuguese and the French mostly, um, the, uh, is actually pretty lenient. Empires basically let people do what they want because they don't want to rock the boat, they just want to extract a revenue. And mo- and the British didn't. They didn't extract revenue because they were quite bad. They actually made a, a net loss in their colonialism yeah. over the years. Yeah, but you, um, you, the biggest problem of colonialism in Africa is they drew borders that basically caused wars. That's right. And that's the same case, I think, for the Middle East. Um, yes, yeah. You know, it's. I was just thinking now, Lesotho and I was going to say Swaziland, but it's since been renamed Eswatini. 
Uh, I don't like name changes. Me neither. It's still Tanganyika to me. But <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> it's still um, Persian, no, right? It's still Persia, is it? And uh, is is it? Are we still in the uh, French First Republic when you go to Paris instead of the French Fifth Republic? No, uh, we're in Gaul. We're in Gaul. <laughs> um, and it's Albion, not England. It's Albion, not England, <laughs> and and Caledonia when we go to Scotland. Yeah. Uh, um, yes, well, speaking of uh, Basutoland and I don't know what the old name of Swaziland was. Uh, no, no, but uh, what I was thinking was Lesotho and Eswatini are the only ho ethnically homogenous countries I can think of in Africa. I mean, I'm just trying to think if there's any other. Or Djibouti, perhaps? I don't know. Eritrea? Mm. You, uh, I'm not sure. I think uh, rule of thumb, smaller it is, the probably the, the, the more um, ethnically homogenous. Yeah. I think that's a good rule of thumb, but obviously it's not concrete. Botswana is another one, funny enough, actually. Botswana, yeah. even Botswana is mostly Botswana. It does have a smattering of, of uh, a few whites who are there, a few Indians. Yeah, they do uh, have a big problem with, uh, well, the problem is with Bushmen, and it isn't the Bushmen who are the problem, it's them oppressing the Bushmen who are the problem. Um, treat them like second-class citizen. Yeah, so I must say, a problem there. So it's not racially peaceful. <laughs> I must say, I didn't know too much about that, but they've had no wars, to my knowledge, since independence. Which yeah, is yeah. well, the thing is that it's, it's kind of lops, uh, one sided. Like the Botswana, the Swana have um, guns, the Bushmen mm -hmm. are still using, like, because they, they can't, the, Bots uh, the Bushmen, to a large extent, still maintain a lot of their culture. Yeah. And they've kind of been oppressed for so long by um, multiple governments, they've kind of just lost all willpower and they haven't ever developed, ever. I know that there's some parts of Namibia um, where the sand people still live. I was actually in the south of Namibia not so long ago, uh, and uh, it's, it's very unpopulated in that southern part mm. just because of how arid it is, and they've set aside some areas for nature reserve. Um, but we must also remember, for example, there were not only Bantu stands in South Africa, because Namibia was a part of, under the South African government, there were also Bantu stands in Namibia as well. And there was even one called Bushmanland. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think the capital was a town called Tsumkwe. Um, yeah, I don't know too much about what's going on in Botswana now. Uh, but it's, it, it is interesting to think about the borders and, and how things are and... I'll be going into the Caprivi Strip pretty soon. I'm interested to see what it's like there. But you know, though, the people who live in the Caprivi Strip are radically different in language and uh, ethnicity from the rest of Namibia. And of course, because if you look at how it juts out of Namibia, it's like this bizarre, only a person could have drawn that border. Mm. Um, so I think, I think you make an interesting point about that. Anyway, Nick, uh, I think it's been a very interesting conversation. Uh, we'll sort of end off around here. Uh, just before I end things off, do you want to say to the listeners where they can follow you on Twitter, social media, etc, etc. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Atsagita, and you can actually um, follow me on Facebook. Just search for Nicholas Woodsmith. Hopefully you can see the title and know the spelling, because it's pretentiously spelled. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Cool. Yeah, uh, as usual, follow Rational Standard at Rational Stand. Uh, I'm Nick Babai on Twitter, at Nick Babai. You can follow me. Uh, and stay tuned uh, for our next podcast. So Nick, thanks very much for chatting to me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Cool, thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. If you like us, you can follow us on social media. But until then, see you next time.